My name is Rachel Gilfarb, and I'm a neuroscience PhD candidate at The Ohio State University. I care about a lot of things, but I have a passion for my field of neuroscience. I know I'm not alone in feeling this way, though. On this podcast, I interview other neuroscience graduate students across the globe to find out why the f- we should care about what they do. Hi, Laura. Hi. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you for inviting me, and thank you for being interested in my work and inviting me to to talk to you today. Oh man, I am so excited to talk to you. So <laughs> before we get into it, why don't you introduce yourself? Yes, so I'm Laura Pritchett. I'm a fifth year doctoral student in psychological and brain sciences at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Uh, I'm under the advisement of Dr. Emily Jacobs, and our lab is the Jacobs Cognitive Neuroendocrinology Lab, and we study how sex steroid hormones influence the human brain. You know, I'm all about that, but in rodents, so I'm very (laughs) excited for the rest of this conversation. So what exactly drew you to this? Because I know our field is very small. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, you know, going back a little bit, when I was an undergraduate, I went to the University of Illinois. So not too far from Ohio. I'm a Midwest gal. Um, I was really interested in cognitive neuroscience. So using brain imaging techniques to understand higher order cognition, how we deal with multiple task demands and navigate a very complex world. And I knew I wanted to go to graduate school and I knew I wanted to use these techniques. I worked with uh, Dr. Sepeda Sadikiani and she looks at how intrinsic brain connectivity uh, and large scale brain networks. So multiple regions kind of co-fluctuating in time with each other to build these networks of the brain um, could influence individual differences in cognition. And so I was really into that. And at the same time, in almost a disconnected way, which I'll get into how it connected later, I was around a lot of midlife women who were going through menopause. And I never really thought that I could merge those worlds together or use those techniques to study women's brain health, but I was very fascinated by that. These are women who were healthy, but just so like specifically had these cognitive complaints of being extra distracted. They'd walk into a room, they couldn't remember where their keys were, but you know, we all do that, but this is really more prevalent. Uh, Going on and off hormone therapy, not feeling better, dealing with stress and hot flashes. And I was really interested in that. I was like, wow, that's something we are all going to go through. I wonder what that's doing to the brain. Why the brain's so foggy? This is kind of characteristically called menopause fog. Um, And so when I was looking at graduate programs, I was really actually looking at people who looked at higher order cognition with a large scale brain networks, trying to understand how some people might have stronger networks, more connected networks, and maybe that gives them an advantage in cognition. When I came across doing my due diligence of every lab possible that I would want to work at, uh, Emily Jacobs' lab, and she, was, she, you know, when she was doing her PhD, was really in the menstrual cycle, estrogen, dopamine relationship world, and then when she did her postdoc, was looking at how neural circuits underlying memory uh, were impacted across menopause. And then her spiel on her lab website was, you know, using these new techniques, using multimodal brain imaging to study. The menopausal transition and like seeing that lab website just like clicked in my head of oh I didn't know that people were studying this although flash forward to what you just said it's a very small world very small field people aren't really studying this um, and right then it clicked I knew it. this is exactly what I wanted to do because I would be passionate about it and I would like love to talk to people there's tons of questions to explore and there's new methods for uncovering the brain as it transitions through menopause. Uh, and so that's kind of the spark that ignited it all. And I've, I'm here now working on my dissertation work, looking at how large scale brain networks change across menopause. So a lot of environmental, the women I were, was around going through something so profound that I just had to, had to understand why and what was happening. You know, I, I interviewed at a couple different places and I met with Dr. Jacobs and she is, you know, 
one of, I would say, a pioneer in the field of, you know, not only cognitive neuroscience, but, but women's health. And just, we clicked immediately and she has a very stimulating lab. And I knew this is exactly what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I knew that before I even applied to her lab, like, this is what I'm going to do. And I'm happy that I'm here, but yeah. Wow. Very cool. Um, one of the, uh, things that you just mentioned, I'm really curious about. So this idea of changes in brain connectivity, uh, I think you mentioned something, you were saying that there's different levels of brain connectivity that can contribute to higher order levels and higher order levels of cognition. Can you go into that a little bit? Because even as a neuroscientist, I don't have a lot of experience with this. Yeah. So what we study, at, I would say, in human neuroimaging is more of a macro scale organization of the brain. So we aren't really doing what a lot of animal researchers are doing, which is looking even between layers of the brain and looking at synaptic connectivity. We are purely looking at, we, so we throw someone into the scanner, we have them either, we record baseline uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging, which is an indirect measure of neural activity, um, basically blood flow to regions when regions are in needing to be active, blood is going to flow there and uh, provide us the, the foundation to engage that region and do the task. Um, and what I mean by connectivity, functional connectivity is largely what it's called, is you can kind of model uh, the, these this activity by looking at different regions of the brain and seeing, and we're talking like larger regions. We're not talking really specific that you might get in um, rodent models, more like um, maybe the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, like that entire area. You can look at how those regions co-fluctuate in time together. And if you do it comprehensively, and this has been done to kind of build this whole field, this has been done in thousands of people, you start to map out and see that certain regions of the brain belong to a similar network. They're typically very active with each other. Uh, and when you look in uh, the sense of cognition and you look at, say, someone doing a working memory paradigm or a selective attention task, you start to see these certain networks popping out. These regions, uh, several regions belonging to a single network, co-activating and co-fluctuating in time together. And when you're trying to understand, you know, individual differences in cognition, for instance, a, a major question is, are some people who are maybe high performers, high achievers on a working memory task, are those networks stronger? Are those regions activated together in a more coherent way? Are they, you know, they just the pure calculations, are they um, higher are they have networks that are maybe more efficient and then and so that's what you're looking at there uh, and people largely look uh, use these methods to understand maybe how those networks change by age how they might change by clinical states disease states uh, under different drug conditions or across various cognitive domains uh, which networks are really important and need to be activated and working strong uh, working well together uh, for this domain versus that domain uh, that's kind of what it means. It's it's just looking at the relationships among regions that fall uh, to a to a particular network. And does cognitive capacity correlate with connectivity? Yeah. So that is, I would say that's a million dollar question. There is a lot of evidence saying yes. There is a lot of evidence showing that um, more connected networks uh, lead to greater cognitive performance than less connected networks. So maybe more integrated versus segregated leads to better cognitive performance, cognitive capacity. Uh, I would say that's still sort of an open question. People are still trying to replicate that, make sure that it, it, it's that, you know, a replicable finding across all the different methods that you use. But ideally that's the understanding is that these sorts of individual differences you see or these differences by group rely on how well those networks are working. And if you're able to task switch a lot and integrate and segregate different networks, your capacity to do well on those tasks will, is kind of a product of that. Based on the research that <laughs> you do, that there can be, that you can, that you can build up this network and that there are uh, perturbations in the environment or in your body that can lead to um, breaking this network up. 
So can you maybe talk about that a little bit too? Yeah. So specifically with sex hormones or just in, in general? Uh, How about in general? And then we do sex hormones. Yeah. So one idea is that as you're aging, these networks become less connected to each other. These regions, maybe like there's some structural degradation. And so these networks are having a harder time communicating between the regions or among the regions. And so that's leading to cognitive decline. Um, yes, if you are there's something in your environment one is like massive stress the questions being asked in the field are okay well if you're under a stress condition are your networks operating the same are they not operating as efficiently as they could uh yeah other sorts of things too that they're asking revolve around within person like you know stress conditions maybe um certain health uh factors too um and then also just looking naturally across time how do these things sorts of change both in development so how do these networks build up together and then how do they degrade over time uh, and do those have impacts on cognition are there are things you can ask and uh anecdotally i'm sure many people have experiences that your cognitive function can change over the menstrual cycle, as well as during other periods of intense hormonal flux. So why don't we switch gears a little bit into our favorite um, and <laughs> let's talk about sex steroids and how they can influence that as well. Yeah. So the field of cognitive neuroscience, network neuroscience, just like you had mentioned, are, are trying to explore how various external and internal factors can influence brain networks. Something that's largely overlooked is the influence of sex steroid hormones, um, both in hormonal transition states, so really like menopause, pregnancy, puberty, uh, hormones going on or off or like going really, really high. Let's look at the just like the fluctuations over the menstrual cycle. Uh, and so I can kind of break down now the 28andMe project, if you'd like. Um, it, you know, so I spent my first few years of graduate school trying to understand the literature, both from the neuroendocrinology and the cognitive neuroscience perspective. And I was also at the same time recruiting samples of menopausal women from around the Santa Barbara area to come in and get their brain scanned. Um, and I kind of veered off a little bit after my first year of grad school uh, into a side project called 28 Me, and uh, it's using dense sampling techniques, so basically extensive longitudinal assessments to map how the brain changes across the menstrual cycle. So a central feature of the mammalian endocrine system is that hormone secretion varies over time, a rhythmicity essential for sustaining many different physiological processes within the brain, as you may know. Uh, yet tr traditional approaches to exploring brain hormone relationships or even just exploring the brain in general are cross-sectional. You're studying one group of people and averaging them and comparing them to another group of people, say 18-year-old college freshmen to 65-year-old retired older populations. Um, those by nature cannot capture fluctuations in sex hormone production. And during my first year, I was reading a lot of uh, a, this growing trend in human neuroimaging, some papers from this growing trend, where they're sort of flipping this cross-sectional model by densely sampling, sampling individuals over timescales of days, weeks, months, or years to provide greater insight into the dynamic properties of the human brain. So this would be the MyConnectome project. This is the Midnight Scan Club for anyone who may be familiar. Uh, so it kind of broke the field open of saying, it's okay to study smaller groups of people just over longer periods of time. You know, we always, maybe when you take your first stats course in grad school, they say, you need to have more power. You need to have larger sample sizes, larger sample sizes, larger sample sizes. But the question is when we are averaging across brains, what signal are we losing? And is that really important? Uh, and so of course these papers and these studies didn't really incorporate sex steroid hormones. It, doesn't 
a necessary factor I, uh, if you're not asking the relevant question, but it, it led to me thinking, okay, there's a gap in our understanding. This method would be really good for exploring how rhythmicity in the brain uh, due to the menstrual cycle uh, could be happening or, or we could, we could uncover it. And so funnily enough, this like an anecdote is I went to lunch with a faculty member in our department, Scott Grafton, and he, we were talking about the MyConnectome project where, you know, a single individual was scanned over years and did metabolic profiles, blood sampling, tracked the weather, tracked everything you possibly could to understand individual variation in the brain. And we we're talking about it. And he said, well, you know, what, you know, would that be beneficial for your field at all? Like, and also does it matter, you know, if I bring in a female at a certain time of her cycle for one of my experiments? And I, I said, there's some evidence there to show that that is the case, but truly there's a lot more we need to uncover, you know, if sparse sampling designs or cross-sectional designs. And what I mean by sparse sampling is maybe bringing in women one or two time points in their menstrual cycle, they can compare absolute values of these hormones, low hormone states and men's menstruation, high hormone states and ovulation and compare them, but they can't capture how the brain responds to fluctuations. And so that's kind of what I said as well. There is some evidence, but we need to do a better job at really understanding the menstrual cycle in the brain. And he said, well, why don't you throw yourself in a scanner just every day, do a 10 minute functional scan and, and uh, you know, see. And I said, well, that's, you know, obviously, and I like to always set this disclaimer anytime I'm talking about this project is obviously if you go to any neuroscientist and you say, what's the best way to understand individual variation in the brain? They're going to say, well, you know, study people as much as you can comprehensively, but it's not logistically feasible. It's, it's hard to do. Uh, and but we, I had someone there telling me, okay, I'll give you all the resources to do it. And you just have to do it to yourself. You're, you know, motivated to do it. And I was walking back from that lunch. We, we met up with Emily Jacobs and I, we pitched the idea and she had already in her head wanted to do this sort of forever. So it was a very easy sell. And within, I would say an hour, we already, we made this an hour long scan. We added in so many other variables, uh, and we set the start date for two weeks. And one of the big things was, well, if we're gonna do this, we have to have the best measurements of hormones. We can't just do saliva. There's too much variability in saliva samples and assessments uh, in humans, just in the sense that if they're low estradiol levels, you might not capture them. So we did both <laughs> um, to look at the relationships there. And, but we said, we well, have to do venipuncture. That means you're gonna have to go and do your blood draw every single day. Um, and so you can tell there's a reason why people don't do this. Um, and so we turned this in and, and started the 28 new project. So for 30 days, I woke up, I tracked my food, I tracked my sleep, my stress levels, my mood. I um, got my blood drawn. I went down and did an hour of scanning. So I did both anatomical scans of my whole brain, my hippocampus, high resolution hippocampus scans. I did resting state. So just base uh, intrinsic measures of uh, brain activity. Uh, I did a selective attention paradigm, a reward task, a recognition memory task. I did a virtual uh, reality spatial navigation task every day outside of the scanner. Uh, and when that wrapped, I mean, it was, it was a really fun experience, which maybe to some people doesn't sound that fun, but having the right team really made it better. Everyone was really motivated to get this done. It was kind of uncharted territory. And so it was funny, I, like the entire team, we got multiple different labs across the department to throw in protocols that they were interested in. And they'd be hanging out, administering the, the MRI uh, scanner and I'd they'd pop in on the speaker and be laughing and I'd feel so sad and get massive FOMO because I was in the scanner and they were hanging out. But it was a massive team effort and that made it so fun and it made it seem like ah, 15 more days left of, of blood draws, I can do it. You know, I got blood drawn from my hands, my arms. We tried my foot one day out of desperation. I almost kicked the phlebotomist in the face. I really don't recommend doing that. Um, and we wrapped it and, and it was really fun. And we, I think we all just felt like this is something really special. We are basically lab ratting myself. I am controlling as much as my environment as I can. And 
it was 30 days straight and we did 30 days because it's more data it really doesn't bode well for the 20 me title project title but uh, we were able to just consecutively day by day every 24 hours sample a female across a menstrual cycle um i know it was just it was very fun uh, yeah. well i've been dying to ask you questions about this because how did you because you said that you tried to control what you were doing how, how did you control <laughs> yeah. how did you control i don't know <laughs> You know, the nice thing is, it's honestly a really good question. And if I were to go back, I'd have to truthfully ask, like, how much control did I have? Well, the thing is that my advisor being the unicorn that she is, was like, this is your only task. Do not go and do a bunch of other things. Uh, so really, that was my only goal for each day was just making sure I'm doing this. And the the funny thing is that to get that many blood draws and to have them be successful. I mean, I'm not much of a water drinker, which isn't really how I should market myself, but I had to drink so much water to do these um, uh, blood draws every single day. And so I would even like just have a count of like how many fluid ounces, because I had a water bottle and I would drink four of those each day. And um, I'd wake up basically at the same time each day and I had to because I was also doing saliva samples I had to make sure that I ate at least two hours and stopped eating at least two hours before my blood draw and so I just came really rhythmic and you know I did of course do certain social events and that you know was noted and, and charted uh, but really I didn't have much else that I needed to do and I kind of allowed myself the space to say okay this is a really big undertaking and I'm the other thing that is I can go into for hours is the responsibility I felt to do this study, not only for the sake of data quality, because if you're going to do a study like this, you have to do it properly. You have to stay still in the scanner. You have to make sure your like, caffeine intake is the same every day and the same amount every day. And I did that. And also for women, you know, I, I was like, I'm doing this to uncover things in the brain that maybe is specific to me, but maybe it's generalizable to women. And how is it 2018? And we don't know what the brain does across the menstrual cycle so comprehensively, I, I will add. Uh, and so I just really let myself get, feel that weight of the responsibility and, and just balanced my mental health across those 30 days. That's really, that's really cool. That's really interesting. I mean, obviously it's very difficult to uh, do this and it's incredibly necessary. Do you have plans to do this with someone else to see if, if it is just Laura that has this, <laughs> <laughs> that has uh, certain changes uh, that happen over her menstrual cycle uh, or with other people as well? Do, do you know any other grad students that are willing to do this? Oh, so many good questions. So I will say, I'll, I'll, fin I'll kind of keep going with my story here, yeah. because when I wrapped the last day of this study, before we did any sort of analyses on it, which I can always go into later, I immediately, and this was the, the, the motto of our lab too, was like, well, I have to do this again and myself and I have to do it. There's one thing to do it naturally cycling. And I hadn't been on any birth control or any hormonal contraceptive for probably two years at that point. Um, and I do have a list of all of the different ones I was on previously, but I, so I was really naturally cycling for quite a while. And I said, well, a hundred million women are on birth control. So it's an incredibly common endocrine state. So I need to do this again now. I, I spoke my piece. I did it for the naturally cycling. I have to do this for birth, with birth control now. And so I went to student health the, probably a couple weeks after, before we even got permission to do this again by um, Scott Grafton, who helped us with uh, using exploratory funds to, to do this fun project. And I went to a student health uh, nurse practitioner and I said, you need to prescribe me the most common birth control for the UCSB undergrad population, which of course is probably the most common one across most women. It's a combination synthetic estradiol progestin uh, pill uh, with one week of placebo Abra pharmaceuticals. Um, 
And I started taking that immediately. And the next summer rolled around and I kind of just kept peeking into Scott's office saying, you know, could I, could I do this again? Can I do 30 more days of scanning? Uh, and he, he said, he gave us the green light and we did it uh, again. We did 30 more days of a very similar protocol and I had been on a birth control for 10 months. Um, and so then we sat there and uh, after that one wrapped and we're like, okay, so should I now go on an IUD? Should I put a rod in? Like how else should I go? And it was a, a running joke that I, I was like, okay, so should we chemically castrate you for 30 days? Like, what are you committed to doing? Um, and, you know, I honestly, I think at that point I was like, I'm kind of done. I, I have to, first of all, I don't know how meaningful it is. We don't really know what those hormonal profiles across 30 days would look like in the other ones. I didn't actually know what my hormones were going to look like on birth control either, which is a whole nother thing. Um, and we were like, well, the most meaningful thing we could see as a follow-up is to just do this in more women. Um, and so was it last, this past May, we did a replication. Uh, well, we're still analyzing the results, but we ran a, a different naturally cycling woman through the protocol. Uh, and so stay tuned. We're going to see what things may hold, what things may be different. And then the other thing is we uh, we're like, okay, well, we are interested in endocrine modulation of the central nervous system. Like what would this, how would we do this in a male? Uh, like what, what could we do? And so we actually, my partner, <laughs> he, he was very willing to do it, but he was also age matched, very healthy graduate student. So he had the time, well, you know, time with a little arm pulling uh, to do a dense sampling of a male too, which I could go into. But back to your question. Uh, I think this is going to be something incredibly important to do across a bunch of women, uh, not only, and this is the question I get after every talk is, are you going to do this again? Are you going to do this with an IUD? And it's women, it's women asking that question. And it's largely probably their endocrine state. And they're asking, you know, okay, what is my brain going to look like? The problem is that we don't know the direct, you know, implications and how much, how static, how replicable of a finding this is in a greater population of women. I think it's incredibly important question to ask. Uh, you know, I was on a lab meeting with uh, Dr. Tori Eisenhower Mole from the University of Illinois, Chicago, and she is a clinical psychologist who studies sex hormones and their relationship uh, with addiction. And she was talking to me about 28 me and she said, well, you may be just really susceptible to hormonal changes uh, across the cycle, whereas someone else may not be. Um, this will tie in and make more sense when I go over my findings, but uh, those changes in hormones across the cycle were really kind of important for the, the measures we were uh, looking at. And she said, well, maybe your brain is just really sensitive to those sorts of changes and vast up and down changes where someone else might not be. Um, and she said, you know, that is sort of a, something we see with premenstrual dysphoric disorder. So maybe you are susceptible to that. She wasn't diagnosing me, but of course, in the moment I was like, well, yep, I absolutely have PMDD. <laughs> She's like, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> I need a full assessment. And I was like, nope, you've convinced me. I have it. I'm just very <laughs> sensitive to sex hormones. Uh, but I thought that was a really good point, a really interesting point and something that kind of keep stays in my head of, well, I'd love to see this in a thousand more women. Uh, but the problem is, and well, I guess I won't go into the problem, but the really endearing thing about this project is that I get emails frequently from other women of various ages saying, I'm happy to volunteer and do this too. And that I think is the best part of all of this. It's, it's research for women by women. It is us not only passionate, but frustrated. And I think that duo is really important. And that really like will bring out a lot of good science. It's unfortunate it has to be that way. Uh, but I love it. I love getting these emails. And it's funny, there was a, a we have two sorts of papers and I can, and I can go into those in a second, um, looking at structure and function, the two main first papers. And someone, a doctor on TikTok actually covered uh, the findings from the, the structure paper where we looked at brain structure across the cycle and it has like over a million views on TikTok and we didn't even know we just kept getting sent it and so we get uh, Dr. Jacobs gets sent 
so, like, I don't even know, at least an email a day uh, from men and women alike saying, I'm in the California area. I would love to do this. I think this is so interesting. Um, it's just continuous and it's, it's just the best. That's amazing. I was going to volunteer myself, but it yeah. sounds like you have a million people that want to do it. Well, you know, I, I would love for multiple universities to just, to just do this. And I would love it if there was an easier way to, uh, like if there was a fund for it or something like this big product, I guess that's what, you know, grants are for, but yeah. I'd love it if just, you know, I, people would do it. There are plenty of volunteers for it who are committed to the cause. Yeah. Out, outside of the, um, outside of the pop science world, do you get a lot of pushback for being the only subject? Oh yeah. And this is something we discussed early on, especially with our publication strategy was how do we like lay out that we completely understand that this is an N of one, but we are finding such cool things. And also we want to encourage and set the groundwork for this sort of dense sampling. If anyone's going to do dense sampling, it's a, it's a definite trend and a really meritable one. Can they include sex hormones? Can they do something where they're looking at the you know, hormonal transitions? Um, and that's why that, that there's that importance of that paper. And Absolutely, we get it. But I think I was pleasantly surprised by the reception we got from it. Uh, you know, we have like six paragraphs in our discussion of limitations. And I, I'm happy to do that because I, this is another huge thing is the week that this paper was, it, it did get accept, accepted, obviously, and we have the limitations, we touch on the, the N of one a lot. And we also, however, were able to replicate our same findings, uh, brain function findings in the second summer of myself, which I was really happy to have like an in-house replication within the same person, but over two summers in the paper itself, that's something I'm really proud of. Um, and I think it's important. Uh, I think the week before this paper was going to be in press, I would have nightmares and I'd have, I'd break out in cold sweats and it's, and it's because it's hard to work in this space sometimes, well, all the time, but we just, and this was, you know, Dr. Jacob's worry too, is like, what is the, what is the takeaway from this paper? I have sifted through, and I'm sure you have seen it too, so many papers that say we excluded females in this study because of the unknown influence of the menstrual cycle, or they cite a menstrual cycle paper, and they say, because of this paper, we decided to just focus on males because we don't want extra variability from the cycle. And in my head, I was like, well, here is another paper. It's going to be cited to use as explanations for excluding women. And how do I control that narrative? And how do I contextualize these results? It's such a nuanced position to be in because I'm saying hormones are really important and the menstrual cycle is really important as a source of variability, but it is not the only source of variability. Uh, there is variability and maybe even greater variability from other things that I may have been doing <laughs> across those 30 day, that 30 day period or other people may have been doing. There may be greater variability in males. I'm just identifying one source of it. And I think that's really important and really interesting for brain health. But this doesn't mean you always have to include sex hormones. If your question is really not getting at that, there's no reason you don't have to like, just if you include women have to have menstrual cycle characteristics or things like that. But I encourage you to, because I think it's an important source of variability. And in my head, I was like rehearsing it. I was in the shower, falling asleep at night, almost kind of neurotically going, oh God, what is, you know, the next round of publications going to be? Or am I only, you know, pushing the progress or making the progress hindered? Uh, certainly some reviewers were worried about that too. Uh, so it's just a nuanced position to be in. But most people were okay with the end of one as long as we very much hit home. This needs to be replicated in larger cohorts of women. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a very scary position to be in. Um, and I totally understand it. And 
this is the the guiding light, Dr. Jacobs, and the the postdoc in my lab, Caitlin Taylor, um, does oral contraceptive research in humans. And I listen to them a lot, and they're my guiding light, and this is their thing. At first, Dr. Jacobs wasn't really interested in looking at oral contraceptive in the brain because of the exact things you're talking about. You know, her her quote is, what is Breitbart News going to, what's the headline of Breitbart News going to be? But then when she said she slept on it, she goes, if I don't ask this question, if we don't ask this question, who does it hurt? It's yeah, still women. Exactly. And it's bonkers to me that, and this goes for basically everything in women's health, that there's a hundred million women <laughs> across the world on birth control. And we don't have the established, or we don't know what it's doing to the brain. However, it is one of the most successful and important inventions of all time. Again, this goes back to this nuance. And it, the only way I can say, my only thoughts on it are to quote Cinda Aga, who wrote Birth Control, Your Own Adventure in the New York Times. Uh, we deserve birth control, but we deserve better birth control. And that's the only thing I can say about, like, that's the only, that's my guiding light because it's going to hurt women if we're not studying it. It's going to be important to study. We have to do it very carefully, which I'm sure is what you were talking about earlier. Is, uh, we have to make sure these models are really good. Are they applicable? Are they going to get at all the different factors of birth control, duration, initiation, different types of um, formulations? I have to go back and after talking to you, explicitly go through and read everything. Yeah, um, absolutely. <laughs> because the first time I read, I read that paper, I was so excited um, and trying to truly determine if you went in and imaged yourself. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, might've, I, I might've ended up missing uh, some results. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like sort of discreet. It's like, uh, subject was author LP and then in some follow-up papers that we have like I we wrote that again and some reviewers were like so concerned about me disclosing that they were like you shouldn't do that like sh you should keep it anonymous and I was like I'm proud of this this is like the coolest thing I've ever done like 60 brain scans 60 blood draws all for the sake of women's health I will put it in the first sentence of this paper uh, and so it was really funny to see how that played out but yeah it was it was me um yeah it's definitely the decisions you made in the paper were I don't want to say brave that's not the right word but they they were like I remember going through and sending screenshots to my friends and being like can you believe this this is like truly amazing so I I really do <laughs> applaud maybe it is brave maybe it is brave like I do applaud you for that because oh, thanks you know it takes takes a certain kind of researcher to do that a certain kind of researcher to to put your name on something like that and to say no you know I did this work yeah. this work is beneficial and you can say whatever you want about it um exactly. but this is important yeah I have like this big being from the midwest I have this big fear of conflict or um <laughs> confrontation and that's why I think those night sets were happening it's like okay but then I was like no you know what, I don't care if this has been end of one, this is important. And not only is it cool, but this is like laying the groundwork for showing like, all right, I'm gonna do this to myself. I'm gonna do it very carefully. And then we're showing like ovulation related effects. There's such cool things in the brain that are happening. High peaks in estradiol related to increased coherence across the brain and really specific networks, but there's also sort of a global effect. And I showed it again. I showed it again the next summer. And this is evidence for you guys to go out there and take it and do more, uh, both from like the clinical perspective of, again, going back and seeing maybe who is susceptible to these hormonal fluctuations. Is there a group of women where these effects don't appear and that aren't noticed? And, and why is that? Let's disentangle that. I think just, and that was the whole thing with this study was you know, sitting in, in Emily's office going, well, actually, regardless of what we find, this is really interesting. Um, it kind of serves as a nice counter or a nice, not counter, I mean, complement to the other da data that exists, uh, both looking between groups, looking within an individual, and here is this one that's looking at smaller sub subjects, but across the entire cycle, uh, what can we find? And I think 
the conclusion is that there are estradiol related effects in the brain and there's progesterone related effects in the brain. Uh, and we got to study them to understand both the brain and women's health at large. And I hope more people do. I hope more people will be doing these, these studies. Oh, for sure. I mean, there needs to be someone that kicks down the door to this kind of stuff. And I think that this article and your work definitely does that. You know, people are asking a lot of the time, like, would you expect changes in the brain across the cycle? And it's like, well, I go back to Catherine Woolley and Bruce McEwen's work, they showing that like dendritic spines in the hippocampus can like <laughs> be profoundly changing within 24 hours of the four day rat estrus cycle, looking at dendritic spine proliferation increased by 30% and then it squashes the next day. like. There, these are biological rhythms. And that's the other thing I was talking to someone recently about this is, yeah, the menstrual cycle we talk about a lot um, among women, but this is truly a biological rhythm, just like circadian rhythms, just like our stress responses each day. Like this is something so central to, the, to biology, especially it being the central facet of reproductive life, our favorite saying in our paper always, we always incorporate that somewhere. The brain is an endocrine organ and this is a central facet of reproductive life. But these signals of the menstrual cycle are really important. Uh, we, and the big question, the looming question that I feel is addressing and has addressed, but needs to do more so of is, okay, well, are there cognitive effects here? It was, you know, the first, bit of neuroendocrinology research was really looking at how the hypothalamus is, you know, regulating hormonal secretion and all that. And it wasn't until what, the 90s or so, where people started to look outside of the hypothalamus into the hippocampus and, and then non-human primates really helped us understand uh, the prefrontal cortex and looking at um, estrogen receptors in the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, you know, 50% of those neurons express estrogen receptors. So if you map out the areas of the brain that cognitive neuroscientists are interested in, and you map out where estrogen, progesterone, testosterone receptors are, they're overlapping. And so the natural question is, well, do these interact? And we know from uh, Jill Becker's work too, and other sorts of, of neuroscientists um, in the animal world that estrogen, for instance, has both the genomic uh, slow changes uh, and non-genomic rapid changes to, to various systems in the brain, including neurotransmitters and uh, them influencing dopamine. So you can go down webs and webs and webs of what all could these sex hormones be regulating. And the question is like, well, why? Uh, I mean, to me, that's like the very large overarching discussion question I love to have with, with people is why would we want to see changes in cognition around ovulation? And do we? And those are questions that I think are still needing to be answered at, at the human level. I am speaking for the human level. Uh, and, and they need to be replicated a lot more and, and maybe using some of these dense sampling methods. I'm going, I can go down the rabbit hole there. So I'll stop no, I myself mean, now. It's, it's really interesting when you're talking about how all these, all these different kinds of sex or sex steroid receptors overlap. Um, something that my advisor had pointed out to me one time that really made a lot of things click is, is where are these receptors? That means that these receptors are acting on the prefrontal cortex, of course, it's going to have some kind of effect yeah. on cognition. In our lab, we're a little bit more focused on um, mood. So if if you have these sex steroid receptors, uh, kind of like polka dotting all of these limbic structures, of course, you're going to be having effects of sex steroids on mood. Um, and of course, <laughs> there's going to be changes in mood. Anyone that uh, has had a menstrual cycle can tell you that there are changes in mood uh, that typically occur uh, dependent on where you are in that cycle. Yeah. Um, and Absolutely. that's that's science and that's life. Um, exactly. So I, yeah, yeah, it's so funny to to talk to people because like I could always, I always think about starting a talk like this. And one time I did, which, you know, who knows if I regret it or not. I was at my <laughs> department, uh, I, your second year of grad school, you have to give a, a talk to your department. And 
I was like, how do I want it? And I was going over some prelim 28me data. And I was like, okay, how do I want to frame this? And do I want to be like this person that just like strips all passion from my talks? Or do I want to like get people riled up? And I was like, you know what? I'll just do riled up. There's no problem with that, uh, which there could be. But I started by saying, who in this room has had a menstrual cycle or knows someone who has had a menstrual cycle? And everyone, of course, raises their hand. And I'm like, okay, so this is something that occurs in 50% of the world's population. And if you talk to a woman, I don't think I said this, but like, like you said, if you talk to a woman, they're going to tell you some women, again, not all will tell you, okay, yeah, I have like increased irritability, maybe depression, anxiety, tension uh, in the second half of my cycle. Sometimes I feel fog. Those are things we need to listen to. And I think counteractive to the, I'm going to be careful in how I say this, the movement of inclusion of both sexes is the fear of, of saying this stuff because it's like, well, one, women can still rule the world. Uh, men are also have fluctuations in mood. Ours just may be tailored to something that's more in a rhythmic way. Ours may be more predictable, but if you talk to someone, they're gonna tell you these things and it goes back to why I was interested in the first place. It's just listening to women going through menopause. It can inform our scientific understanding of things. It can for, inform our the way we design studies or what we even ask. So inclusion of both sexes, inclusion of women of reproductive years or non-reproductive years changes the nature of the questions we ask and it can inform a lot of things. Uh, let's listen to them because if so many women are dealing with mood changes across the cycle, let's really put a lot of funding towards understanding that. And, you know, we made some progress with now, you know, premenstrual dysphoric disorder in the DSM, uh, but we still don't necessarily know what's happening and what we could do. And well, yeah, it's, it's interesting when you're talking about this resistance uh, to incorporating sex as a biological variable, because I know that a big feminist argument and something that I have to deconstruct in a lot of the circles that I operate in um, is the, the stance that I'm the stance that I'm referencing is by acknowledging difference you inherently order um, and, and that's just not the case um, because at least how I feel and I from your nodding I assume you feel the same way but um, yeah. but by acknowledging these differences um, we help both men and women and anyone along the sex or gender spectrum as well. Absolutely. Um, and so just really kind of nailing down what really is contributing to individual variability and individual variation is, is quite important. Um, something, speaking of uh, something, <laughs> I wanted to uh, pivot back uh, to the, I don't know, quote unquote male version of the yeah. 28 and me project uh with your partner i'm yeah is your partner a, a psychology student no he's not he's he just loves me oh my <laughs> no, gosh i yeah <laughs> he is so yeah so this was actually this is always so fun to talk about because i had so many discussions with uh my team about like what sorts of follow-ups are going to be important and one that was always on our mind was well we want to look at you know we didn't know if we wanted to paint it as like looking at sex differences or just looking at endocrine modulation just in both sexes because we just think that's important and so we were like we're going to do this we got to find a candidate my my partner he's now a Dr. Pavel Shapovrinko, but he is, uh, he was a chemical engineering PhD student at the time. And it just timed perfectly when we were going to collect the data. It was um, still a, a padding enough time around when he was writing his dissertation proposal and before he would start it and kind of COVID still. So, you know, human subjects testing wasn't really up and running, but if, you know, it was a small group of people and it was the same individuals every day, we are, we live together. So we were like, in our own bubble, yeah. then we could safely do it. But so before we did that though, we sat down and uh, talked about it. We go, should we examine a male for the lens of a sex difference comparison? Although, 
albeit an N of one. And so should he come in at the same time you did your blood draws and should he do all the same, you know, sequencing like the brain imaging and just compare 30 days of variability within a female and a male and all that? Or should we try to also probe testosterone variability in the brain? And how we would do that, how would we do that? What's the best way to do that? And, you know, when you're, I always get the percentages a little bit wrong, but hopefully I'm in the ballpark. When you're young and say in your twenties, you're going to see sort of diurnal variation in testosterone from morning to night drop by 70% or so, like a pretty big enough change. Um, and then as you proceed into the different decades, that percentage change between morning and night is a smaller, but he was in his twenties. There was a paper that showed blood they did blood draws morning and night uh, of males so we kind of had the estimates of when his peak testosterone would be and then the decrease and the the um the lowest testosterone of course that is paired with uh alertness and awake <laughs> and cortisol so we knew we had some confounding variables but we had to ask ourselves, what's more interesting to us, looking at how fluctuations in testosterone might influence the brain, or is it just like this variability argument that is kind of in our field? And I love to talk, talk about the variability argument too. But uh, we decided on the, let's map his fluctuations in testosterone. We, you know, that's what's interesting to us. And we, we had multiple conversations. We got on the phone with Dr. Adrienne Belts at University of Michigan and picked her brain and uh, Rick. Dr. Rick Betzel at Indiana University, we were asking anyone we could in both imaging and endocrinology of like, how would we parcel these sorts of confounding effects with each other? So long story short, he came in, he actually did 40 sessions over 30 days. So for the first 15 days, he did 7 a.m. blood draws, brain imaging. He did saliva and serum. And then for the last 15 days, and actually the the we did 10 days of overlap. So the middle, I always forget the math of this, but for the middle section, he did both morning and night in the same day and then ended with five or so, 10 or so um, PM scans only. And so his PM scans were like at 8 PM. So they were, he was really put through the ringer, but for him, he's like, this is perfect. I can work during the day, you know, typical grad student mentality. Uh, I can go into lab right away. Uh, and so he had both morning and night scans and we didn't end up doing the double blood draws each day. We kind of had to try to preserve his, his health as much as possible. Um, and we saw some really cool effects in a graduate student in my lab, Hannah Grotzinger is really kind of taking over this, this analysis and is already starting to see and can preview. She's seeing some testosterone related effects of um, looking at brain coherence, relationships between testosterone and brain coherence, estradiol in him as well, um, and cortisol. And right now we're really working to, to kind of try our best to model those relationships separately um, kind of progressing out some of the, the cortisol effects and, and all that. And, uh, so some really cool effects, but th that paper should be out, you know, probably in a year or so. Um, but that I'm happy that we made that decision. I think it's really interesting as a side note, something that I think is super cool. And <laughs> I, you know, I don't know if anyone else thinks that's really cool. We were looking at his hormone data and one day there was an outlier of his testosterone um, in the evening. So evening testosterone was already really low, but there was one day where it was super low and it was low both in his serum testosterone measurements and his uh, saliva measurements, his estradiol being toggled as testosterone aromatizes in estradiol. So being related, estradiol was also low. And we're like, oh, is this a test measurement? measurement? Did we like mess up the blood collection? What's going on? And we actually looked at his notes in that afternoon before he got the COVID vaccine. Uh, and so what we're thinking is, well, I'm like 99.9% .9 sure is that there was that per perfect expected immune response that signaled to for testosterone to be, and this is like a true outlier. It almost looks like a perfect V. It bounced back the very next day. Uh, and it was, but it being the same across every single measurement uh, was very interesting to us. I thought that was super cool. It was like showing that your body's doing what it's supposed to do. Uh, it was really fun. But That's fascinating. 
but yeah, so that's what we decided to do. But, you know, some other sorts of analyses that she's worked, Hannah is working on right now too, is just looking at like my, I, I, we did assay my testosterone levels for both of the studies too. So she's kind of looking at testosterone relationships in the brain for both me and Pavel and estradiol for Pavel and myself. Uh, and so I think, you know, toggling between both just understanding the endocrine relationship in both sexes, plus also comparing them and looking at a variability across the sexes, both are really important to do, but, but that was a really fun project and one that of course also hadn't ever been done before. Yeah, that is super interesting. I, um, the way that I typically explain um, hormonal variation and it's super reductive um, <laughs> uh, when I explain sex as a biological variable is, I, um, is that, we think of female hormonal variability over the month and male var variability over the day. Mm -hmm. um, so again, super reductive, but it's, it's oh, nice to hear it. that, you know, I'm not completely making something No, up. <laughs> I don't even think that's reductive. I feel like that is, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I'm, yeah, it was, it was such a fun, like, like brainstorming sessions that we had of like, how do we, and we had even like an endocrinology professor tell us like, you're not going to see any sort of variation. Um, and if you look at, you know, the him at the same time point every day, like at 11 a.m. every single day, and we're like, yeah, we gotta like try our best. Although there are these latent variables, gotta try our best to like naturally compare and contrast uh, testosterone. And he wasn't really on board for us giving him injections of testosterone, <laughs> which maybe not. Mm. Uh, I remember posing that to him one day. I was like, hmm, how do you feel about testosterone supplements <laughs> so that I can flip it and at night you'll have higher? And obviously I was joking, but but that's what we did. Uh, I don't know, you know, there would be a lot of cool follow-ups to, we have someone, you know, completely not mentioning the name or anything, but someone did email us saying like, I'm about to start, uh, he wasn't affiliated with UCSB, but saw the TikTok and said, I'm about to start testosterone, like supplements, like this could be, cool to compare. So it's even cool to see that men are also interested in knowing how hormones influence their brain. It's a, it's a very interesting, it's just a way of knowing yourself better. It's a vital sign. Mm -hmm. uh, someone put it that way once. And I was like, that is so fascinating. And I love that. And that's how I should market this. So understanding this is a vital sign. Yeah. I, I love that. It's um, your work is seriously so fascinating <laughs> um, to see like I mean, our, our work very much complements each other. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. It's and I can't wait to see all the stuff you're doing too, because it's like what I dream of, you know, like I'm trying to get at this. I'm trying to have more of this sort of controlled environment. <laughs> so I just do it myself, but I'm really interested because one, I'm obsessed with pregnancy. Uh, I think pregnancy is incredibly fascinating. And I will say that we did this data with this uh, method in a pregnant woman. So we scanned her before she was pregnant, all throughout her pregnancy and after, including one year postpartum. Uh, and we have prelim data right now. And I'll, I'll mention it or bring it up maybe the next time uh, we chat so you can see it, but that is, and I go into a lot of the pregnancy uh, immune system, like immune responses and, how the brain is changing across pregnancy. Because once again, science and life, you talk to a pregnant woman or you know anything about these rapid rises and all of these hormones, you're gonna go, of course things are happening in the brain. Of course things are happening in the brain across pregnancy. And I just think it's so fascinating. So I'm, I'm jealous and so excited to hear about your work with what you all you're finding. Oh my God, I'm so jealous of your stuff too, but in the best way, in the best <laughs> exactly. way. Exactly, yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's, it's very exciting that I've, that I've gotten the chance to meet you and talk about your science. Um, I guess this is a good time to wrap up. It's a good natural yeah. end, even though I don't really want it to end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, no, um, so I guess one of the, uh, one of the wrap up questions that I had prepared is what's one of the biggest problems that you have in your research? I'm not sure if we touched on it yet. Um, mm -hmm. but if you want to take a stab at that? There, there are many. So one of the biggest looming ones that I think actually is getting 
not, I wouldn't say it's getting remedied now, but it's definitely become a better thing. The historical uh, problem in our field was even including women in research uh, that, you know, and there was the NIH Revitalization Act of 1993 that finally permitted women of reproductive years to be included in scientific uh, explorations, clinical trials, things like that. That was beneficial, but then there was the entire ignoring of sex as a biological variable uh, across basic science research that was sort of remedied or sort of addressed at the national level by Janine Clayton, Op Director of the Office of Research on Women's Health, uh, her sex as a biological a variable initiative for the NIH. So now we're seeing you can't submit a big grant to the NIH if you don't include both sexes. And if you aren't including both sexes, you need to have like a explanation. You need to be looking at like prostate cancer in men or so on and so forth. Uh, so that was kind of the biggest thing was just even valuing the inclusion of females and women in science that is sort of now becoming less and less of a problem. Uh, Specific, the other issue is is funding. So there are a lot of women's health related conditions, conditions skewed towards women that uh, are pretty prevalent. Endometriosis, uh, one in 10, I think, and polycystic ovarian syndrome, one in 10 women. Uh, those are heavily disease burdened conditions and some of the fewest to get funded uh, at the NIH. So that's one of the biggest issues too is understanding the importance of, of women's health in uh, federal funding, um, I would say is, is a big one. Uh, we need the funds to, to do these really strong and compelling and replicable uh, research studies across women's health. Uh, I would say those are sort of the two biggest ones off the top of my head. Uh, and just, you know, understanding the nuance and, and writing papers that get at that nuance and are clear and careful so that people don't misinterpret, I think are, are, is another kind of one off the top of my head that our field needs to address more. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Mm -hmm. um, and I know we've, we've really, you know, been talking a lot about this one, but how about a one sentence snippet of why the f we should care about this? Yeah, uh, one sentence. Oh, how can I put this into one sentence? Maybe two. <laughs> like, be nice. You know, women are half of the world's population, yet we do not really understand sex-specific factors that play a role in their livelihood in their brain. Uh, there are so many conditions and diseases that are dis disproportionately burdened to women, and we don't study the the underlying cause of that nearly enough. Uh, we need to understand how sex steroid hormones influence the, uh, the female brain across the lifespan um, and in both sexes, um, because it's important for not only us understanding how the brain functions and the brain works, but for women's health at large, they, sex hormones are critical and to the brain, they're neuroprotective. Uh, but what happens when we lose them? What happens when we muck with them? We don't know. And so much of the population is doing that. That was probably, that was way more than one sentence. Uh, maybe but, like five or six, but it's still, yeah. still pretty good. Um. <laughs> so hard to, so hard to, to narrow it down, but sex hormones are important for the brain and they change across the lifespan. And so we need to know what's happening. Ah, there it is. Cool. <laughs> That's compelling, but it's less. <laughs> no, great job. Seriously. Great job. Um, is there anything that you want to plug before we go i i found you on twitter yeah nice. i have twitter laura pritchett very inventive uh handle uh plug if you are um in the california southern california area and you're interested in participating in one of our studies uh we have a current study going on the ovarian hormone suppression study that's looking at how uh complete or partial hormonal suppression due to the, for the treatment of endometriosis can influence the brain. And they also need healthy controls too. Um, and they're looking actively for participants. So that's what I would plug is join in the research, look at your local university and see if there's any cool research going on and volunteer to participate, uh, especially if it's women's health, but just in general too. 
Well, awesome. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Yeah, of course. Uh, Thank you so much for inviting me to, and I'm excited to stay in touch with your work and read it and have it inform a lot of my ideas and predictions and future projects. (laughs) Interested in being on the podcast? Message me at rgilfarb on Twitter to tell the world why they should care about what you study, like what you hear. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. See you next month.